We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When it's too tough for them, it's just right for us. Where would you rather be than right here, right now? The Rock Pile Report with Buffalo Bills season ticket holder, Drew Gear. The Bills make me wanna... Andre Holmes is headed to Buffalo, according to NFL Network insider Ian Rappaport. The free agent wideout is set to sign with the Bills on a three-year deal worth $6.5 million. A former undrafted free agent who broke into the NFL with the Cowboys in 2012 played the past four seasons in Oakland. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of the Rockpell Report podcast. I'm your host, Buffalo Bills season ticket holder Drew Gear. That's my producer, Chris Krueger, and that was Mark Istook from NFL Network talking about the recent signing of Andre Holmes. We're going to discuss that and a lot of other free agency details, things that have come out over the last couple weeks since we last recorded, in a few minutes. First, we've got some business to handle, and it starts off with a celebration. That's right, folks. The Rockpile Report, our last podcast, was the most downloaded episode in our history. And we couldn't do it without any of you guys. I mean, you show up week in and week out, no matter how good or bad the game went, to hear what we have to say. 330 downloads. (laughs) I'll tell you, from Chris and I both, thank you guys. I mean, you guys are the reasons we do this. Thank you so much. One year ago, we didn't even have an episode with 100 downloads. And now we've got... The last one is at like 294. <laughs> this the, the one that we just recorded two weeks ago is 330. We're exploding. Now, here's what I want to do. I want to thank, first and foremost, Chris. Chris, why don't you go to the coverage map and tell me where the majority of our downloads are coming from? Because this is actually pretty interesting. Uh, how about top 10 states? Top 10 states. New Jersey, Georgia, Ooh. Arizona, Massachusetts, Florida, Iowa, Virginia, California, and number one, New York. Go ahead and give yourselves a big round of applause. Thank you so much for helping to just, I don't know, join us in what we enjoy doing, which is getting drunk and talking about the Bills. Now, worldly, in the month of March, 84 downloads from Sweden. From Sweden, our friend Tomas Bromir. Woo! Fan extraordinaire. The guy is a legend. Love him. 
UK, 57 downloads. 57? Oh! My country, Germany, (laughs) three downloads. And we have one from Uganda. From Uganda? And I firmly believe it's Kamala, the Ugandan giant from the WWF, who's 92, 93, (laughs) maybe 94. I don't know. <laughs> I'm assuming it's he's the only person I know from Uganda. Whoever he is out there in Uganda, we're glad that you found the Rockpile Report podcast. And to everybody else from the UK, I mean, we've got fans like Alex Wormall. He's one of them. You know, yep. on Twitter, he's at Wormito. He's a big Warhammer fan. If you guys are into that thing, Terry check White, check him out. Terry White, another guy, just constantly communicating with us. I love this. I love the fact that you guys take time out of your days to follow. Us and to listen to Drew. <laughs> Guys, what is wrong with you people? Thank you so much to each and every one of you for making this show what it is. All right, guys, thank you so much again. And now, to, to here with us on tonight's show, we've got a real treat. Rob Quinn from USA Today Sports Media's group's Bills Wire. Rob Quinn is here with us tonight. Rob, how are you doing? I'm doing good, guys. Thanks for having me on. <laughs> Anytime, man. Now, a lot of you, I know you might see him posting in different uh, Bill's Facebook fan groups and things like that all around the internet, or maybe you follow him on some form of social media. Uh, Rob busts his ass pumping out Buffalo Bills-related articles on a daily basis. I mean, I give him a ton of credit. I went to school for journalism. He's actually out there doing it. You know, I work in finance. I gave it up. I waved the white flag. I said, journalism isn't for me. Rob is grinding away, making a living at this. And I, I, I got to say, Rob, I'm impressed by you. I really am. Oh, I appreciate that. Yeah. Um, I mean, I started doing this probably 2010 around the draft. Then I want to say just as a hobby, I started with uh, Bleacher Report and as one of their featured columnists for the Bills and I got into it just kind of messing around and it took off from there and people actually for some re- whatever reason decided they wanted to read what i had to say and <laughs> just took it from there it's kind of crazy how that happens right like right. you're just a dude talking about sports we're just guys talking about sports but there's people out there who care and then that almost pushes you to want to do more to want to do better to i don't know it for me it's like it it, it pushes me to be better um now i gotta ask so have you lived in Buffalo your whole life, or how is it that you came to be a fan of the Buffalo Bills? Um, I was born in Buffalo, and I moved to South Florida, actually, with my family when I was about nine in 1999. And then I moved back up here in, I want to say, about two and a half years ago. So, uh, back to the motherland. <laughs> now, did your Bills fandom start as a kid, or did you get into it more as an adult? Um, as a kid, I used to go to the games with my dad all the time. Um, he was a season ticket holder, and then we used to go to the Miami Dolphins games down there and just get beer poured on us. And oh yeah, so, sure. You know, just great experiences as at a young age, and learned watch the Bills lose and <laughs> the walk of shame back to the car and all that fun stuff. So they got they 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 got you acclimated to what it's like oh, being a yeah. Bills fan. So now your work that you're doing for Bills Wire, how many articles per week do you would you say you average? Um, we, we, we got a great team. Um, Robin Mundy, uh, a rich fan, Stephen Cully, a, f- a few new people as well that are really great. And we, we try to put out as much as we can, really anything that happens we want to do. 
Um, we average around six to eight a day. So I'd say probably about 50 a week, really, just on anything that's going on with the bills. Man, that is incredible. Like I said, that's an incredible amount of content to just generate on your own. I mean, that's, that is, that is. Plus, when you factor in all the research that you oh, have to absolutely. do for articles. I mean, I joke around with my girlfriend that this is a part-time job for me. And because because it's funny, I sit around, I drink beer, and I research football so that I can talk about. Well, it. I also pitch that to you that this <laughs> you have to treat this as a job if you want to get three hundred and thirty downloads. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, but you know, I mean, it's fun because part of it is is obviously the curating the the news that we all see on on Twitter daily. Mm-hmm. But um, I, I like to take a look at things from a different point of view or maybe a different um, perspective than what the regular fans would think or kind of play devil's advocate a lot. So I, I really have a lot of freedom um, with my bosses there that really let me write what I want in addition to just the daily, oh, this is the bill signed this guy. And so it's it's been a great experience. Oh, I can only imagine. That's the, the, It's nice to have the creative freedom. So I've got to ask you, every single guest has to ask some, I have to ask some boilerplate questions. First off, what is your favorite Buffalo Bills memory? First one, if I were to ask you, what was your favorite moment as a Bills fan? What would it be? Uh, hmm. I'd have to say either the Bills 49ers game I went to with my dad when I was a really little kid or when the Bills beat the Dolphins when I went for my friend's birthday. He was a huge Dolphins fan. He went with a group. <laughs> I remember uh, Chris Chambers had a huge game and they were just ragging on me the whole game and they ended up coming back and winning. And the just I got to talk trash and wear my Willis McGahee jersey on Monday nice. to school. That had to be the so, best feeling walking out of there after being just like dogged for the whole. Oh, game. yeah. Mon- Mondays at school when you could wear wear the Bills jersey with pride. That was that was some fun. Now, are you still in contact with this friend? Oh, yeah, of course. Back home, I mean, we, we like to rag on each other about the Bills and the Dolphins because obviously both teams are kind of in similar situations. So, you know how that goes. Now, I've got to ask this an, another one. What is your worst memory? What's the one thing that when you think back as far as as long as you've been a Bills fan, what's the one thing that makes you cringe when you think about it? Um, the first game I went to when I moved back up here against the Kansas City Chiefs when Jeff Tool started and threw that pick six, oh. or not the pick six, the interception in the end zone right yeah. there. That was, and then just oh no, that got ran back for a touchdown. That was that was, a, that was a pick six. That was a pick oh, six was, from 103 yards. Yeah. I, I tried yards to erase out. that from my memory. <laughs> right. Thanks a lot. He's but, like, uh, thanks for <laughs> But I mean, I was freezing. I'm a, I was a Floridian. I wasn't used to that. <laughs> 40 degrees was cold to me at the time and walking back to the to the car after the, just watching Jeff Tool as a starting quarterback throw that interception uh, that was that's I was pretty bad. Oh man. Yeah, coming back from the south into this cold climate is not easy. I've got a lot of friends who moved down south and when they come home for Christmas or Thanksgiving to visit their families and then they try to acclimate to the cold, I think in in your head you think it's going to be okay. But it's so much colder than you remember it being. <laughs> like I watch my friend's face. He came up here from he lives in Pensacola and he came up here for the Rams game a couple a couple years ago. And I thought he was going to die. I looked at him a couple times and his eyes were barely open and he was all p- tucked into his jacket like a penguin. I'm like, dude, are you going to be OK? It's not even that cold. <laughs> 
It's not that yeah, bad. that's how I was the first the first year I was back. I went. I remember going to the Chiefs and the Bengals game, both horrible losses that year, <laughs> and I was just miserable, freezing. And oh man, now I'm used to it though. I'm, I got my Buffalo blood back. So there you go. Now on game day, what is your routine? What what is where can someone if they want to find Rob Quinn on game day? Where would they be? Where would they have to go? And what's your beverage of choice? Oh, you know, during games, um, with the new job, I I, I can't really drink because it's really a all day affair. Mm-hmm. Um, the game, game um, kind of have to live tweet it, and then immediately after we do our takeaways and the press conferences and get the quotes out and the stories because now in the internet age, I mean, everyone's trying to be first and get that content out to get those mm-hmm. uh, views and everything. So you really, we try to, we'll be up at a four, if the game ends at four o'clock, I'll be up till midnight just pumping out quotes from press conferences and takeaways from the game and what we thought and going forward and stuff like that. Um, I, if I go to a game, I'll get there early and tailgate and everything like that, obviously. But in the past year, um, it's it's more like a work day. Not a whole lot of time for that. Yeah, that's that, yeah. Well, yeah, because that's your that, that's it for you. That's ground zero. You have to be there. and You have to be ready. So afterwards, do you take a minute? You know, once you're done with with your writing from Sunday, do you give yourself a minute. What is the first beer you reach for? Um, you know, I, I, do, I do like Molson since I've got back. I used to be a big Heineken guy. I've started drinking some uh, Resurgence, the the local beer up here that's all right. Mm-hmm. But, um, <laughs> yeah, there's a few local ones that I like. Nice. So it doesn't sound like there's any rest for the wicked on your end, Uh, You're grinding around the clock. So let's get into it with Rob here. We're going to move on to this week's Buffalo Bills news update. The Buffalo Bills have matched, decided to match the contract for Ryan Groy. Now, just a few shows ago, we talked about the fact that Ryan Groy was an important cog in the Bills' offensive line rotation, given his versatility and the way he performed in replacement for Eric Wood when he went down with that broken leg. And apparently the team agrees. Groy has signed to a two-year, $5 million offer sheet by the Rams, and it took the Bills less than 48 hours to match that offer to retain his services. Now, Rob, how do you feel about Ryan Groy? Um, you know, at first when they claimed him off of waivers from, I believe it was Chicago, I was mm-hmm. kind of just nonchalant about it. I thought it was just another uh, pickup like with the, with Patrick Lewis. But when we saw him come in, I mean, he played all 16 games. We saw him as the extra offensive lineman and those unbalanced formations. And then on Monday Night Football, when Eric Wood broke his leg, he came in and it was really pretty much a seamless transition. I think pro football focus credit him with, I believe 10 pressures all year and to retain a 26 year old uh, guy that can play guard and center for two and a half million dollars a year that has that versatility and that upside. I mean, I think that's a great move for the bills. And like you said, in less than 48 hours, I think it was just a no brainer. Well, the thing for me, the thing, here's the thing that confuses me about the Groy situation. It, the talk around the internet was that the Rams saw Groy as their potential starting center for 2017. So if that's the case, why wouldn't they have fielded a more competitive offer? I mean, you look at, in 2014, the Bills took advantage of the Miami Dolphins. They were strapped for cash. They had just signed Indomitian Sue to a monster contract. 
And the Bills knew how it was structured because they waited. They said, okay, this contract is structured with most of the guaranteed money due in the second year. We'll offer Sheet Charles Clay with most of his money due in that year where they can't afford him and they have no choice but to let us take him. So if you're going to offer Sheet a team, you got to be smart about it. You have to do something that they're not, if you really want that player, I guess. I mean, I'm just looking at it from hindsight and thinking, if they actually thought that Groy could be a starting option for them, why the hell wouldn't they have offered more money? It just doesn't make any sense to me. Uh, well, looking right now, I mean, the the Rams are in worse cap shape than the Bills are. They, uh, I'm looking at over the cap right now. They have $3.7 million in cap space. I mean, they're paying Tavon Austin and Robert Woods like they're Julio Jones and well, the, the next Jerry Rice. <laughs> well, that so was the, I, one of the things that I, didn't I mean, make sense to me. You're going into this draft where you know you're going to need about $4 million in cap room to sign your rookies, at least. Mm-hmm. And you, you, you sign Robert Woods. I mean, I love Robert Woods. Don't get me wrong. But I, I think, and I've seen it you know, thrown around the web elsewhere, that will go down as the worst free agent signing of this offseason. I mean, that kind of a money for the player that Robert Woods is. I'm not trying to dog him, but he is not worth the paycheck he's going to be drawing. And that's what I was afraid of when everyone kept saying, no, we need to try to retain him. No. For, for what he brings on the field, I can find a good run-blocking rookie with maybe a little more offset offensive upside. I mean, do you agree? Yeah, I, I definitely agree. And I think we're just going to see those numbers increase. I mean, last year, look at Mohamed Sanu and Marvin Jones. They set that market at, for the secondary receivers making $8 million yeah. a year. And in Woods, I mean, he's 24 years old. Um, a team might argue, oh, he had EJ Manuel and Thad Lewis and Kyle Orton throwing him the ball and – now we have another awful quarterback and Jared Goff, and we can just keep the trend going. <laughs> so um, I could see their justification in bringing him in. I mean, I thought that he could have produced a lot better with a better quarterback situation, but $8 million a year for a guy that never eclipsed 700 yards, like you said, I think you could definitely get that number two receiver in the draft on a rookie deal. Let's not forget uh, Bob Woods is from California. So essentially, yeah. he's essentially he's just going home, and I think that might look uh, good on Todd Gurley with Robert Woods's uh, run blocking ability. Well, no, fantasy, and, and I'm sure that that plays into fantasy a little bit. There. Man, you know what? I don't. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not putting that much. I'm not paying a receiver that much. Point blank and period. So next on the docket, Cam Robinson came to town on a pre-draft visit. Oh, my God. We got to plug Alabama again <laughs> on the goddamn show. <laughs> okay. Well, this has been one of the most more random Bills reports to come out over the last few weeks because it involves a pre-draft visit instead of just consistent bitching about the status of our front office. It was reported that offensive tackle Cam Robinson from Alabama visited the Bills. Now, the reason I think that that's odd and that it's noteworthy is that we all know that right tackle is an area of concern for the Bills. But Robinson is pegged on most big boards and mock drafts as a player who's going to go somewhere in the number 20 to number 30 pick range. You know, he's right there at the end of the first round, maybe maybe low middle. So taking him at number 10 is, I mean, that idea is a non-starter. It's a, it would, be a, it would uh, be a monstrous reach. Swear to God, if we're going to trade up for Cam Robinson, Trade up. <laughs> oh, so what? I, and, and you're also talking about a draft that's very weak at offensive tackle. So I'm I'm not seeing him falling into the second round. So it, this leaves me with two theories. 
Cam Robinson came here. I think a the Bills are looking to add a starter at right tackle. They tried. There was rumored in free agency that they were interested in the guy from the Ravens, but he got signed by the Lions. Um, they were, you know, they, they tried. You know, they brought in Vlad Dacos for whatever that's worth, and they re-signed Jordan Mills. So at least we have the status quo, which wasn't great. I think that you know they really are looking to add a starter, and they think that they might be able to trade back and want to see what Cam Robinson is actually capable of in person. Before, you know, saying, hey, maybe if we trade back in the 20 range, we can pick him and have a day one starter. That's not out of the question. Or B, the Bills are trying to drum up a trade market for a team above them to draft Robinson or some team in the middle of the back of the draft to trade up for him. That's all I can think. Because offensive tackle in this draft is so weak, there's really only three offensive linemen pegged to go in the first 75 picks. I mean, that's... I don't know. It's just the visit didn't make sense to me, and I thought it was odd. What, I mean, Rob, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, like you said, I, um, this is a really weak offensive tackle class, and obviously right tackle is a major issue. I mean, the Bills have four out of five of those offensive line spots solidified, and even though they brought back Jordan Mills, it was clear they wanted – they had some interest in Ricky Wagner. They had Andre Smith in and Cam Robinson. I mean, he's um, definitely the top – tackle prospect he could play on the right or left side a lot of people think he could play guard um i do think that a big reason that they brought him in was to just kind of talk to him because if you remember during the off season last year he was arrested for uh felony possession of a firearm and narcotics so we know coach mcdermott's big on character and they did bring in tim williams too who has some off-field issues as uh himself So they might have just brought them in to do some due diligence just in case, you know, they do drop out of the first round and they have the chance to pick him up in the second and they can be confident in saying, okay, we can bring this guy into our locker room and he's not going to get into any trouble. So you're you're looking at it like a Cordy Glenn situation where he's a guy who might go at the end of the first round, but no one takes him. And when he falls to us, we know that we've vetted that player enough that we feel confident to pull the trigger on him. Yeah, either that or like you said with the trade market, because you know how offensive tackles always get pushed up in the yep. draft. I mean, we're we're probably going to see one of these guys go in the top fifteen, which they probably shouldn't. I mean, Garrett Bowles is going to be nearly twenty six, and then you got Forrest Lamp and Cam Robinson, and those <laughs> are the the top guys, and none of them are really impressive other than Cam. I mean, he's been the big man on campus since he got there, and you know, Bills fans will just riot about. Cyrus Quanjo and another Alabama tackle, but I think he's a quality player. Um, but again, those off-field issues are something that should be addressed. How many how many uh, pre-draft visits are we uh, allowed? Uh, Thirty, and you're not allowed to work them out. You're allowed to interview them and conduct written tests with them. I believe under the NFL rules, you can work them out in your region. Well, I was gonna say, do we know? I've do we gathered. have? A percentage of since we've had Doug Whaley as GM of how many people we've had in for a visit that we've actually drafted. I think I think that I saw an article last year that said that the we really do tip our hand a little bit with our pre-draft visits because the guys that we tend to bring in, we you know, draft, we draft, we draft out of that pool. So it's not out of the question to see the Bills maybe if they find themselves in the right situation calling Robinson's name on draft day. It's really not. 
And then that brings me to my next topic here. Buffalo Bills news. Something that Rob has been writing about ad nauseum, and I cannot wait to get into the ring with him on this. Doug Whaley on the hot seat. Fact, fiction, or is it something in between? Now, last week, Jason LaConforno of CBS Sports penned an article stating that Doug Whaley's job might be in jeopardy and that the front office might seek some kind of a shakeup you know, that would see the team bring in personnel from the Panthers' front office who know Sean McDermott, who, by all accounts, is gaining more cachet with the owners, and try to squeeze Doug Whaley out of the picture in exchange for a more McDermott-friendly system. Hey. Hey, hey, well, here are my initial thoughts, and I'll give them to you in order. When I heard about the Lock and Fauna report, it was a Saturday night. I was getting ready to go out with my girlfriend. My first thought was, considering the team's struggles, I'm not surprised to hear he's on the hot seat. <laughs> Step number two, do I really feel like cooking anything tonight? <laughs> maybe <laughs> pizza, maybe the bar. I don't know what I want to do. And then number three, I wonder how many more beers I can throw back before my girlfriend even notices I'm drinking. <laughs> That's it. That's the list in its entirety. Okay. And even after hearing that the following week, that human equivalent of a hemorrhoid, Jerry Sullivan, wrote an article <laughs> in the Buffalo News expanding on those topics, I couldn't have given a shit less because I honestly believe that this is all a non-story. But now everyone's talking about it. So, just, Rob, thank you for coming here with us tonight to try to talk our way through this, okay? I was just going to say that La Confora is about as reliable as Wikipedia. <laughs> <laughs> now, now, Rob, I, I mean, I, correct me if I'm wrong, but these are the tea leaves that I think everybody out there is trying to read. They see a handful of moves, and they're all just drawing conclusions from it. First off. For the first time in years, the Bills will not have a pre-draft luncheon with the GM. Okay, Doug Whaley will not be speaking publicly before the draft. Sean I mean, Mc, Sean after, oh. after seeing how he, how he was treated by WGR and the reporters in the past year, I mean, would you want to get in front of them and have to answer those questions? I mean, he's been under fire for the past year, and... He really hasn't done much to justify that. And I think this report is complete BS. Uh, Like you said, Lock and Fora is about as reliable as Wikipedia. I mean, he comes out and he just speculates and throws stuff at the wall. Oh, they could be McDermott friendly. Um, Okay, you can't make lateral moves in the NFL without the general manager owner's permission. Um, Again, Sean McDermott. He's come up through the ranks under Jim Johnson with the Eagles and Andy Reid and really organizations where they've had that one voice philosophy. You'd see Andy Reid, the one talking to the media. Um, Look at the Seattle Seahawks. Pete Carroll's the guy talking. You don't see John Schneider up there in every press conference speaking to the media. So I know it's a little premature to say that Coach McDermott's going to be this Super Bowl winning guy that brings the bills back to the glory days but i think there is something to be said about having just one voice instead of so many conflicting different arguments that we saw with rex and whaley and marone even in the past that just led to the media outrage two things doug whaley probably has to take out the pagulas for a steak dinner at russell's so because he's not 
rolling out in front of the Buffalo media having to answer <laughs> questions from hacks like Sullivan and Bucky Gleason. And honestly, I, the only time th- this offseason I've seen Russ Brandon was last night congratulating Gio on a 1,000 games. No, you know, they've done a really good job of keeping and, – and I think you're right. I think you have a very good point. Sean McDermott comes from a coaching tree where he saw you had one guy. Okay, You had one guy who was the focal point. And that's the way – I almost feel like that's the way it should be. Mm-hmm. You know, you look at some of the most successful franchises in football, and if you asked me what their GMs look like, I couldn't tell you because you never see them at a podium. You rarely and, and ever Nick hear Dermot them. said that last night in uh, Vic Carucci's article. I mean, Vic Carucci hasn't exactly been getting the scoops that he was getting um, prior to McDermott's hire either. But McDermott was even saying he's like, we're one voice. And obviously, Whaley's helping in free agency. I mean, people are looking at the signings and, and saying, oh, Whaley's being cast aside. No, you're bringing a brand new defensive scheme, a brand new offensive scheme, and you need new players that fit that. So obviously, you're going to go out and try to identify those players with the limited cap space that you have and bring them in. That's not an indictment on Doug Whaley being out of a job. It's the fact that he's doing his job and bringing in players for the coach that he apparently had full autonomy, quote unquote, of hiring. Well, and that's I, I think this whole notion of oh, there's a rift between the coaches. Yeah, maybe they had it. Maybe they differed on what to do with Tyrod Taylor. I don't doubt mm-hmm. that. I don't. That's one of the things. That was one of the things that people kept saying. Oh, this is the growing rift between the quarterback and GM, and that's what started this narrative. I think B- back in you know b- back in early March when the combine was going on, I think that it drove that narrative of well, they're not on the same page. Two guys are allowed to have a difference of opinion. Rob, I don't expect you to agree with me on everything. Yeah, but, that does, but that doesn't mean that you and I can't sit down in a room and figure out what's best for both of us if we're both on the same, you know what I mean, if we're, if we're both working for the same company. That's we, my thoughts exactly. I mean, if you're in a business, obviously you might not agree with the, the plan for the year going forward, but that doesn't mean that, oh, we're going to fire everybody and bring in people that only are going to be yes men to, to me. So I think the whole Doug Whaley being on the hot seat thing, it might have some legs to it considering um, just the flack that he's got from the media and the Pagulas might succumb to that. But if they do, I would lose a lot of respect for them for that. I think ultimately this draft is going to go a long way to saving his job. It's a deep draft. It's going to be one of those drafts where when you get a draft like this, this thing's like a pinata just waiting for somebody to hit it because it's at the t- it, I want to say it's kind of lean at the top end. You know, you don't have those day one starters, you know, guaranteed, you know, second contract guys coming out in the top 10. I believe it's starters off the bus. But what you have is you've got a collection of guys in the second, third and fourth round who can come in and start for your football team. So this is a draft that I don't want to say that it's hard because no draft is easy. You know, the job of a GM, I don't want to sit here and say that I can do it. But I'll say that this is going to be a draft that is really hard to fuck up. And if he finds a way to do it, then, yes, that may have an impact on his future here in Buffalo. But ultimately, I don't I don't know. I have faith right right now. I have faith in them having a good draft. Yeah, I mean, I, I hope so as well, but it's it's I think this draft will go a long way in just in letting us know exactly how much power Whaley actually has, because um, every draft that he's been here, he's been make, he's made trades. 
he's been aggressive and he's kind of made some bold moves. So we'll see if um, they do the same this year when, uh, excuse me, a guy like uh, McDermott comes from the Panthers where they really valued the front seven and the wide receivers. Now the bills obviously need a wide receiver, but they need a lot of secondary help. They need linebacker help and defensive line help and all that. So I think it'll be interesting to see if they stand pat or trade back with this because they only have six picks. So Whaley needs to nail on all of them. Oh, absolutely. Now you're talking about them finding guy. Uh, you're finding help at wide receiver and defensive, you know, on, on the, in the front seven. That's going to move us right along to our Buffalo Bills free agency update. You are my possession. We're going to start it off with the Zach Brown free agency situation. Now, this is an interesting one. I know that because this has been dominating a lot of the, you know, for like all of last week towards ramping up to the weekend. Zach Brown's name kind of dominated the news cycle here in Buffalo because he had come back for he, you know, he had toured the country. He had gone to three or four other football teams. Heard, he their best, Miami. heard their best offer, fired his agent, and then come back to Buffalo. And yet, he's still not signed by anyone. Now, and he's still not answering Preston Brown's tweets. <laughs> right? That should, that should tell you something. I think, ultimately, Zach Brown is an interesting situation. This is my take. Last offseason, I don't even think half the people, I mean, the people who follow this podcast know, but... A lot of people out there didn't even know who the hell Zach Brown was. I was the one who was calling for him over and over and over again. I said, at the onset of free agency, I said, we don't have money to spend. This guy just lost his starting job, was hurt, and got cut. But I know he can ball. So let's go out and get this guy. I was hoping they'd send him to a longer contract. The fact that he signed a one-year deal turned out to be smart because he was a monster in Rex Ryan's scheme. Now, he set himself up. You figure he went to the Pro Bowl. Right? He's 26 years old. He plays a high-impact position in the NFL. He went into this free agency period looking at it as, this might be my last chance to cash in. And I think that his previous agents maybe pumped up his ego a little bit when it came to what he would mm-hmm. be able to obtain on the free market. And I think that's where he failed. Because he trusted their word at the fact that they could get him that $7, 8000000 million a year contract. When in reality... No one's going to pay a rote, you know, either because he, I mean, don't, don't get me wrong. He's, he's not Luke Keekley. Luke Keekley is a linebacker that I will pay $9 million a year. Zach Brown, he's just not that guy. And teams know that. So I think he, he toured the country. He went to a handful of different teams. They gave him their best offer and it was well below what he expected to get. So he fired his agents. He hired new agents and he came back to Buffalo to see if Buffalo would Maybe give him a deal. And so far, it doesn't look like that's happening. I mean, Rob, what do you think about all this? Yeah, like you said, I think this was the case of Zach Brown loving Zach Brown more than the NFL loved Zach Brown. Um, He had gaudy numbers. I think uh, Mike Rodak tweeted something that he was the only person to have those statistics other than Patrick Willis and Brian Erlacher. And since 2000, since 2000, and he tweeted that out and posted on Instagram and with his little goat emojis and all that. And I think that he really thought that the market for him would be a lot higher. Um, coming off that one year prove it deal, he proved it, but the market 
just isn't there. So I think that he's going to be a player that signs after the draft. Once teams kind of figure out who's who they have on their roster and he's going to be signed for a camp somewhere. Hopefully it's with the Bills after hearing that Ramon Humber is a starter at, at weak side oh. linebacker. Well, and you but. know what? I think that that's more of a product of, and this is what a good GM does. You and I and I again. This is why for everyone who out there who wants to bash Doug Whaley, I'm not his biggest fan. I'm not going to be a cheerleader for the guy. He's made some mistakes, but what I will say is that you go into a draft. Not wanting to have to, you've got six draft picks. You cannot go into a draft with six holes to fill and expecting to hit a starter on every one. It's not going to happen. So you have to find a way to plug holes. And I think Ramon Humber's a guy who has a little bit of starting experience from his time uh, with the Saints. He came here and was more of a rotational player, backup, special teamer. I think that he is their worst case scenario at outside linebacker. I think that their thing is if, if the draft doesn't fall our way, if the second wave of free agency after the draft doesn't go our way, at least we have a body. We have a guy who can get out there and play. And I, I, that's what you have to do as a GM because you have to fill the field a 53-man team. Yeah, and I was really surprised with what Whaley was able to do given their cap situation. I mean – if anyone that wants him fired to just look at the moves that he made in a matter of two weeks, I mean, creating that cap space, restructuring Tyrod's deal, bringing in players like Mika Hyde, Poyer, DeMarco, Dukas, even though he's terrible, and <laughs> Andre Holmes and everybody and Philly Brown. And they filled up basically everything that they really needed as um, positional needs, even though it might not be the player that you wanted. It's still plugged the hole. Absolutely. And now, as you guys heard in our intro, Andre Holmes is signed with the Buffalo Bills. Now, as I alluded to, Rob, the, we've been plugging holes. You know, you talked about wide receiver in the front seven being a priority in Sean McDermott's, you know, what he's, you know, what the Carolina Panthers used to do and probably what he's taken away from that franchise. Well, to kick off our kind of free agent rundown here, as far as recent signings since our last podcast, Andre Holmes Wide receiver, formerly of the Oakland Raiders. Soon to be Las Vegas Raiders. <laughs> oh, my God. And can we get my one, because I hardly talk and stuff like this. Can, I, <laughs> can we get my one question out for the two of you to sure. discuss? Before he and I put our heads down and actually start talking about football, Chris, what do you want to know? I want to know, is Andre Holmes a product of playing behind Crabtree and Cooper? I don't think so. He, I mean, he never put up the numbers. Um, he's a 6'5", 210 guy. He's 28. He's been a uh, reserve option, really. Um, but I think he's a good replacement for Justin Hunter, who was a beast in the red zone. I mean, he, what do you have, four touchdowns on 10 or 11 catches last year? So just bringing in a big body like that that can at least compete and has experience. Um, I know McDonald's. McDermott said they have the number two receiver on the roster already today. I don't think that's true with Holmes, but I do think that he can come in and and make plays for this team. Now, here's the reason why I might kind of lean towards because you never want to be drafting a rookie wide receiver and just assuming that he's going to turn out to be a stud. Mm -hmm. Some of these guys take time. It doesn't happen overnight. I mean, so 
you know, there's a lot of different ways that this could all go. I mean, you're talking about the draft. The draft could go a million different ways. What happens if you don't end up getting the wide receiver of your choice who you think is a plug-and-play option? There's got to be a number two. The thing you got to remember is we're switching to a West Coast offense, which basically is going to scheme up ways to get your wide receivers open horizontally instead of trying to beat everyone vertically, which is what we're used to seeing. That's what I expect Sammy to do. So a guy like Andre Holmes, his value increases in that type of an offense. For no other reason than he's got a monster catch radius. I mean, this is all the research I did on Andre Holmes. You hit on it. He is a monster in the red zone. And his catch radius is ridiculous. He's, he's basically Justin Hunter, except he's a more complete receiver. I really feel that. And then one of the curious things about Andre Holmes, at the, at the combine, he posted a three-cone drill time of 6.69 seconds. What that means is that at six point at six foot five and two hundred and ten pounds, he has the horizontal agility of Odell Beckham Jr. And his hands are better than Justin Hunter's. I just don't see a way that we don't find a way, even if we draft a first round wide receiver, of incorporating this guy into the offense. And I think the contract we got him at is very reasonable. Oh, absolutely. What what was it? Uh, three years, six, six and a half. Six and a half million. Yeah. I mean, for for a veteran like that, that like you said, in the West Coast offense, I mean, you saw Rick Dennison with the Broncos playing with, with Demarius Thomas and Emmanuel Sanders. Um, obviously, they're not on that level, but you're going to have that Sanders role where they're going on the underneath and crossing routes and then Demarius, who's kind of playing bully ball. Um, so Holmes could be that big target where Tyrod could just throw it up. My only concern is is Tyrod going to be aggressive enough and have the confidence to throw those passes up, which is what scares me with <laughs> Mike Williams. Oh, yeah, no, you're not wrong. I mean, you're talking about a guy that he has the physical talent to just come in and be a monster in the NFL, but he's got to be paired with a quarterback who's not afraid to throw it to him. Yeah, I mean, you see Deshaun Watson, he just – would roll out and just chuck it up there. And well, Dabo Sweeney Williams called it. The down Mike, with it. Mike Dabo Sweeney referred to it as he joked around with some reporters, said that he and he and Watson had an understanding called the Mike Williams rule, which means that if he's single covered, he's open. And if he's double covered, they better be on him tight or else he's still open. Yeah, so, and the Bills, since Buddy Nick said uh, they need a guy that's open when he's covered, I mean, they still haven't found that guy. But you need a quarterback who's willing to throw into that coverage. Yeah. And Tyrod is a see-it-and-then-throw-it kind of quarterback. So mm-hmm. that's going to hurt that. Now, another addition at the wide receiver position is Philly Brown. Okay, for everyone out there who goes, who? Downtown Philly Wait, Brown. What? He was f- he was the biggest I, producer in the Super Bowl for the Carolina Panthers, and we got him on a one year six you know veteran minimum six thousand nine hundred dollar contract. Now, if I had to grade this signing, if I had to assign it a letter grade, I give this signing a C plus. Okay, he projects as the number three or number four receiver on our depth chart, maybe even lower depending on how we ad- address the position in the draft. He hasn't had anything of in the way of consistent production over the course of his career, Rob. So th- this is where this is the first time I'm going to disagree with you here. Um, you talked about Robert Woods getting five years, thirty nine million dollars. Um, Philly Brown 
very similar build, very similar skill set. Skill set. Um, we've seen him make plays. Um, the Panthers had Calvin Benjamin, that Funches, and Greg Olson as the their main passing options in their offense. So Philly Brown, I mean, we've seen him make plays. Um, we saw that 86-yard touchdown to put him in the Super Bowl. Um, he'll be competing in the slot where Robert Woods was projected to play. And coming at 690000 I think you get 80% of Robert Woods' production out of a guy like like Philly Brown. Well, <laughs> I feel like that's kind of aggressive. To, to put that, that kind of a production on Philly Brown, I don't think I mean, so. Robert Woods hasn't had 700 yards in a season, so if you get 400 yards and two touchdowns out of him, Nah, I mean, I, I, this is the way I look at him. I don't view this signing as a win or a loss. I firmly believe that there are players in this upcoming draft that have more upside than Brown that are going to oh, be absolutely. cheaper than what he's bringing to the table. I think that he's going to come to camp. He's going to compete. And I see him ending the way Greg Little did, getting cut before the start of the season looking for work. I, I, just, I think that he's coming in here firmly on the roster bubble. That's just my opinion. Oh, I mean, I, I'm not disagreeing with that. But at the same time, I think that the Bills had to have a type that they wanted to replace with Woods. I mean, he's six foot, 190. I think uh, Woods was 6'1", 195. They're both slot receivers, a good route runner, short to intermediate um, in, in that aspect. So while he may not be the, the physical blocker that Woods is, I think that you can get some production out of him. And like you said, I mean, he's going to be competing for a job, but at the same time for 690 grand, I'd rather pay that for a year and gamble on him in training camp than pay 39 million to, to Robert Woods. No, absolutely. No, Rob, the, the amount that Robert Woods got paid, I think we can all agree is pretty absurd, right, Chris? I mean, I, I mean, that's, that's the type of money you just don't give that type of a contract to, a wide receiver who, like he touches on, hasn't had more than 700 yards receiving in a season. Well, I mean, what are the... I don't have one touchdown last year. The uh, thing is, he's not a very dynamic athlete. He's not. He's, he's a very sure-handed possession receiver. I like that about him. I like that you can throw it to him consistently. And then if it's a, if it's a fairly thrown ball, he'll, he'll do his best to come up with it. He doesn't drop many balls. But... He does not have the explosive athleticism. I mean, I'd put Muhammad Sanu a category above Robert Robert Woods because I could put that guy into a game, make him the focal point of my game plan, and trust that he's going to come out of the game with over 100 yards receiving. I can't do that with Robert Woods. I would say that... I mean, look at, look at the Monday Night Football game, though. Yeah, well, I Against would... Seattle. When Sammy was out and everyone was out, I think Woods had his time to really show what he could do. And like you said, he's never going to be that number one. Um, he's not that explosive, but I think he's tough. He can make the, the difficult catches. Um, he works the middle of the field really well. And um, I think Corey Brown could do some of this, some similar things to that. I just think we'll see. I just think with the, the way that the Rams had to trade up some stock to get golf last year. And then they don't really have, I don't think they have draft capital this year. So I don't, I don't find it, you know, surprising that they went out to pay one of the better receivers on the free agent market. I mean, granted, there wasn't a whole lot to choose from, 
you know, Robert Woods might be one of the better free agent receivers that you could buy. And plus, he's from SoCal, so I totally see why he wanted to go back to L.A. And then the Bills also signed uh, Brandon Tate, another wide receiver slash kick returner. I just assume he's going to be special teamer returning kicks. Oh, no. I mean, Brandon Tate, you look at the deal that he signed. Okay, we brought him back. I, I was the one kind of advocating for Brandon Tate to be brought back. Not Brandon Tate. For us to sign Cordero Patterson, because I knew that we needed a dynamic kick returner. Yeah, we had a secret bet on that. But Thank once, God. but once he once he signed with who? The Raiders. Yeah, he signed. He signed yeah. with Vegas. He signed with the Raiders, and so I was like, okay, well, then I guess I won't be mad if we bring back Tate because it doesn't seem like anyone else in the NFL has any interest in him. And sure enough, he came back. You know, he came back here, and I mean, I, I give this thing a C minus. And you want to know why? Because it's unimaginative. You guys aren't. You, you, it seems like. When, okay, let me take a deep breath. You still got Crossman. He's a special teamer. Musa, Yeah, he's a special teamer. Crossman's still here. Crossman probably advocated for him to get resigned. I don't give a fuck what Crossman advocated for. He was he was top five in punt return average. Boo! Boo this man! <laughs> oh. Traffic that return kicks. <laughs> He could be your Philly Brown that gets cut in camp. Rob, thank you for talking me off the ledge. I mean, literally, this is what I'm here for, man. When I'm looking at this, I look at what Brandon Tate's bringing to the roster, and all I see is that here's a guy who's serviceable at best. He brings nothing. You don't see that that crazy face from the concussion? Oh, yeah. Oh, that picture was worth a thousand words. That's a dude who got knocked, knocked the fuck out like Friday. Just bang. So... What I'll say is this. He was serviceable last year, but he has no value on offense. When he had to step in and play wide receiver because of injury, he really wasn't useful in any way, shape, or form as a wide receiver, which means he has one role, and he doesn't really – I feel like the the quality of the coach and the quality of the uh, personnel on special teams, even though we were rated the 22nd – what, 22nd worst special teams – it's because of that 65-yard onside kick. Oh, Jesus Christ. Don't tell Lorenzo Alexander that. Chris will never, literally, Chris will never let this die. The Jets game where the Bills allowed a 65-yard oh onside kick for a touchdown. Next segment, please. No. Yeah, no, 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 absolutely. But Chris will never let that die. I oh. think that's going to be the bane of his, like, he's going to remember that. That's going to be his worst Bills memory if I ever had to pull him. Yeah, uh, well, Rob, Sunday... Because, you know, players report on Monday. Sunday, Reed Ferguson, our long snapper, he stays with me while he's in town. He he was on practice squad watching that game with us, and he, too, could not believe. 65-yard 60, onside kick. Are you kidding me? Pick up the ball. Just so many moments from last season. I just wish I had one of those men in black clickers I could just erase. We signed Ryan Davis, defensive end, two years, two point two million. What letter oh, grade do you give that contra- that signing? I give that an A. Um, Ryan Davis, undrafted free agent by the Jacksonville Jaguars, spent a couple years there. Um, 6'2", 275. This guy's really underrated. He's versatile. He can play defensive end. Um, with the Jaguars, he played any everywhere from the three technique, defensive tackle, and sub packages. Um, in base defense, he played at out wide at defensive end. 
he's a powerful, strong dude, and he's got heavy hands. Um, once he gets those long arms latched on offensive linemen, he's got the power to just bully that lineman into a quarterback's lap. And we and he had that six and a half sack season with Jacksonville. Then he went to the, uh, Dallas, and I think he had an injury that cut his season short. But I think that Coach McDermott and Frazier will be able to get creative with him, um, with Shaq Lawson and Jerry Hughes and Darius and Kyle, and really ro- rotate those guys around. So I got to <laughs> – this is – Rob, I thought you were my friend. <laughs> Rob, Ryan Davis, are you kidding me? An A? As a, as a backup? Oh. rotational pass rusher. Oh God. When you okay. Have no cap money. The, okay. 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 All right. I'll give that <laughs> to you. No cap money, but I'm just looking at the signing at face value. The guy's got versatility. You're not wrong. He can play any position on the defensive line. And I think one of the best things he has in his arsenal is his ability to pass rush from, you know, he's got that size, like you said, and that violence in his hands, he can get, a pass rush from what is predominantly a D tackle position on the D line. You know, he's a guy that you could rotate in on third and long and he's going to fight. He's going to hand fight with those guards and those centers. You know, that's his job and he does very well at it. What I'll say is that I think that, you know, versatility could land him a roster spot, but depending on how this draft goes, you know, if there's DNs or if there's anybody else, it could have a huge impact as to whether or not he even makes the roster. He could be cut. Again, another bubble guy. I I don't see him on the bubble. I mean, if you look at McDermott's profile for defensive ends going back to his days with the Eagles, Davis is that. And the same with, with uh, Crichton. I mean, they like those big base defensive ends that you can kick inside and really do a lot of different things with and use multiple defensive ends. Um, and it's going to keep a fresh rotation. So I think as far as value, you can't really give it a bad grade. I mean, whether you like the player or not, then, <laughs> then I can understand. But as far as the value for a $2 million deal for a rotational pass rusher. That's true. I mean, you, for you the can't money, get you could do worse. You could do worse for the money. This guy's yeah. a pretty good player. Now that's, you just, but you I'm just not brought, saying that he's going to be an all pro or any of that, but I think that he can come in, play 250, 300 snaps and get a couple sacks and make some plays. Now you just brought up a name, Scott. Well, is it Crichton? Crichton? I don't know what the hell. I don't know how the hell to pronounce it. The Buffalo Bills just as recently as yesterday picked up Scott. We'll go with your, you, we'll go with yours, Rob, since you're the guest, you know, when in Rome. Scott Christian, defensive end. He formerly of the Minnesota Vikings. Now, the, the details of what his contract might look like going into next year, I haven't been disclosed yet. If I had to give the pickup a grade, again, I would give it a C plus. Now, here's why. Mm-hmm. I loved this guy. I, well, I shouldn't say loved. His college production was very good. Coming out of Oklahoma State, I think he had 23 and a half sacks over his career. He was a two-year starter which is pretty good numbers, playing in a pretty good conference. You know, you play in the Big Ten, or uh, excuse me, Big 12, that's a competitive division of college football. So I looked at him coming into the draft as a guy who could add some, some value in one of the later rounds. I did not expect him to get drafted in the third. 
And the worst part was he went the pick before us, which seems to be the curse of the Buffalo Bills. <laughs> I mean, if you think back to all the draft picks we missed out on, Adrian Peterson went, what, two picks before us, a pick before us? Ben Roethlisberger. Uh, uh, you know, uh, Patrick Willis. Uh, ben Roethlisberger. Vernon Davis. All these great players who got picked Dak. just ahead of us. Dak Prescott. Oh, God. <laughs> so, ultimately... Christian went to the Vikings. We drafted Preston Brown instead. I've been okay with Preston Brown's production. He's not a world beater. He never will be, but he's he's serviceable. He really is. Now, I look at what Christian was at the time. He, he had a great motor coming out of college, but he didn't have a whole lot of refinement in his game. And then he went to the Vikings, but got stuck behind Everson Griffin, who is just a, a phenomenal 4-3 DN. I mean, Everson Griffin might be one of my favorite DNs to watch. In a four three, he's just yeah. he's he's everything. He's speed. He's power. He's finesse. He's got it all. I mean, it used to be Justin Tuck, and now that he's out, Everson Griffin's the guy that draws my eye. And then they brought in Danton Jones, and then there was Daniel Hunter. I mean, there was no room for Christian to develop a role. Yeah, plus he he uh, was dealing with some concussion issues, if I recall correctly, and like you said, he was just never able to carve out a role and really develop. But, um, I mean, I'm a big measurables nerd, if you haven't noticed. And there's a great follow on Twitter, um, Justice Mosqueda, who does these um, uh, profiles on pass rushers and uses their combine metrics. And it's called Force Players. And I definitely recommend that you look it up because he finds these guys and – Crichton was one of them. Jerry Hughes was one of them. And basically, it's a, almost 100% hit rate that if you meet these thresholds, then you have a great chance of becoming an all-pro or high productive, highly productive player. At least a borderline so, Pro Bowl player. Yeah, I think I know what you're talking about. I, w- I wouldn't say Crichton's a borderline Pro Bowl player right now, but I think picking him up is another guy that fits the mold of the McDermott defensive end. Now, and the thing, the thing about Crichton that scares me, and you just touched on it, not only did he have concussion issues, he hasn't played a game or a snap since the end of the 2015 season. So there's your camp body that could get cut. Week 13, <laughs> he suffered a concussion. He came to camp for the, uh, for, the, for the Vikings last year, never played in a game and got put on IR before camp even really got into the swing of things. So he clearly still had some lingering effects from that concussion. Now we've signed him, but I think that he's nothing more than camp competition. For everything yeah. that he could be, all of the, you know, that's the most dangerous, potential is the most dangerous word in sports. Because if you bank too much on potential and you don't look at what they actually produce, you end up, you end up banking with the wrong people. You bank yeah, on the th- wrong guys. This is going to sound it. insane, but do you remember Jamie Blatnick from preseason yes. a few years ago yes. when he had those sacks. Yeah, I feel like it could be one of those situations where he's an overhyped guy and kind of flames out. Well, it'll be interesting to see how all these guys fit the scheme. So mm-hmm. that brings us to one of the other reasons we had you here on the show. Now, now this week we rolled out the first of what is the Rockpile Reports online poll of the week. Just one poll. Those things aren't scientific. <laughs> <laughs> and this week, we took to Twitter 
and Facebook and Reddit and basically scoured the internet for people's opinions and polled our fellow Bills fans to see what they thought about the best option. You know, we're, we're trying to change gears into draft talk because that's ultimately what's going to fill the void that all of these free agents can't. So we pulled the internet to find out what they thought the best option for the Buffalo Bills with the 10th overall pick might be on draft night. I gave them four choices. The best wide receiver, the best defensive back, the best quarterback, or to trade back into the 15 to 25 range. Now, the results were were pretty telling of what the fan base thinks needs to happen. Between three different Facebook groups and Reddit, 74 people, and the 74 people, and then what I think amounts to about 60 some odd percent of who vote, the people who voted, said that we should absolutely, without a doubt, try to draft the best wide receiver at number 10. Those people need to go to a mental hospital. <laughs> I, hey, whoa, 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 hey. Defensive back came in just under that. Then quarterback, somehow trading back in this draft, finished last. That should finished be, last! That should be number one. I feel like I'm on crazy pills! <laughs> <laughs> trade back. That's what I want us to do, trade back. Okay, so we've got Chris's two cents. Me personally, I think that in a deep draft, if you can trade back from 10 to somewhere into the 15 to 25 range... That is gold. You're going to add at least a second round pick. At least a second round pick. You're not going to get a second first, but you could maybe grab a low end second or a high third that you could pair and get into the second round. I I just, I feel like in a a draft that's known for its depth and not for its top end talent, you'd be dumb to turn away an offer like that. Rob, what do you think? Um, First of all, I completely agree that taking a wide receiver at 10 is ludicrous um i know Corey davis is one of my favorite players in the class but i think that the bills have way more pressing needs than taking the top 10 wide receiver i don't see mike williams as a top 10 prospect um trading back should be the priority for the bills right now and they should be on the phone right now figuring out if they can strike a deal we saw 2013 when they moved back from 8 to 16 and they picked up a second, a third, and a seventh, I believe. Mm-hmm. Or yeah. So I mean, the Bills don't have a fourth round pick. They don't have a seventh round pick. And like you said, it's a deep draft. They have a lot of holes that they need to plug. And those positions are deepest in the middle in the middle rounds with talent. So I mean, trading back is ideal. Now I got a lot of flack on Twitter today for <laughs> suggesting that cornerback should be the pick. Um, I know everyone's been saying, oh, cornerbacks in Coach McDermott's defense aren't valued and blah, blah, blah. But, I mean, you still need to have guys out there that can defend the pass. You you have Tom Brady in your division with Brandon Cooks and Rob Gronkowski and whoever they're going to have for the next 20 years while he's over there. So, I mean – Cornerback is a big position, regardless of whether you're playing zone or man. No, absolutely. And I think this is, we've touched on it in previous podcasts. This is the deepest draft for wide receivers and cornerbacks in recent history. 
So why would you want to waste a top-end pick when you can get extra picks, plug more holes, and still land a guy who could come in and start for you day one? I just feel like it's ludicrous. So many of you fans out there want that wide receiver. Would what need, are we, Detroit? <laughs> what you need to understand is that that wide receiver will not make your quarterback good. A, a stud wide receiver will take a quarterback who's decent, like Matty Ice, and make him great. I'll tell you how. As Julio Jones did. I'll give you an but example. A mediocre quarterback, like EJ Manuel, will not be made great by a wide receiver like Sammy Watkins. Just like and how many teams have used multiple top 10 picks on their starting wide receivers? The Lions! The Lions! Oh, they were terrible. Roy Williams. And then they yeah. who, who else did they take? They took like two other guys, too. They took Mike Williams, Charles Rogers, Charles, and, yeah. and Megatron. Now, hey, Rob, remember that, t- remember that one time Austin Collie made Peyton Manning's career? Said no one ever. Yeah, I think I don't want to see a wide receiver taken until round three. I mean, I, I think there's there. It's basically like Baskin Robbins. Just pick your flavor in this year's draft after the first round. I mean, there's Mike Williams, uh, Corey Davis, and John Ross are obviously the guys getting all the hype right now. But then in the second and third rounds, you have Chris Godwin and Zay Jones and Juju Smith Schuster and guys that can come in. And you want your number two receiver. You're not looking for a number one like you were back when they drafted Sammy. So. Why would you use a top 10 pick on a secondary wide receiver that's going to be playing in a run-first offense? I think you need to get that defense shored up and fast. Now, I'll tell you. and, and Unless and it's O.J. Howard. One of the things that people talk about, you know, my love for Alabama. When we had um, Nick Geary on the show. Oh, last so draft David Njoku instead. Nate Ge- you. Oh, see, I can't stand that guy. <laughs> I think he's I think he's a glo- he's a Devin Funches who's a little more mm-hmm. athletic, but he'll get used the same way. I think his yep. rookie season would be rough. Transitioning from tight end to wide receiver is tough. It's not easy. Now, I look I last last show we were talking to Nate Geary and we were talking about wide receivers that we liked. One of my favorites, well, actually I'll talk about two of them here for a second. Josh Reynolds out of Texas A&M. They're all SEC boys because that's the football I watch the most. Josh Reynolds has elite size. He's a big dude, and he's slated to go in the third or fourth round. He's six foot four. He's best downfield. He's he's not the fastest guy, so it's tough to get him open right off the line, unless it's a jump ball, which he can win with his size. But downfield in those intermediate areas, you can't put a linebacker on him. Because he'll he'll find his way open. And safeties can't even really keep up with him. But the guy that I most like in those late rounds, you know, those middle rounds, that third, uh, although he might go higher than that, I don't know, like high third, high fourth, Ardarius Stewart out of Alabama. The guy, he he seems to me like a more athletic Robert Woods. Because you talk about the one of the best rushing football teams in college football. Well, he's out there on the perimeter blocking constantly. And yet, yeah, Calvin Ridley, man. Uh, Calvin Ridley, he's he's too. You know what the thing is? I notice a difference in the game of our Darius Stewart and the game of Kelvin Ridley. Kelvin Ridley is the guy who catches the ball downfield. Okay, he's the downfield threat. Our Darius Stewart is the guy who's going to catch the ball for five yards. He's going to try to just slap his way away from everybody and try to chew up some extra yards after the catch. 
Our offense is going to need that, especially a West Coast offense that is designed to get guys open and generate yards after the catch. Drew, I can hear it in your voice. Uh, if He's going to be a Reggie Ragland from last year. If we draft our Darius Stewart, I will flip the draft table. <laughs> no, well, not that. Not that. Rob, Drew, I can tell, is extremely into this conversation with you. <laughs> but we did hire Sean McDermott as our head coach, a defensive guy. And I think that's where we're going to go in the first two rounds is on the defense side of the ball. And we got you on to talk the D-tackles and D-ends. So for this week's installment of the 2017 pre-draft analysis portion of the podcast, defensive ends and defensive tackles. Now, before the podcast, Rob sent me a link to some, some I mean, I took a look at this thing. I am a, I'm a statistic junkie. And I'm looking at what he's compiling here, and I gotta say, it's I'm pitching a half stack, just looking at this thing. <laughs> now, Rob, you gotta tell me what, what what is it that you're working on here? All right, so um, the Seattle Seahawks they started the Seattle Seahawks and the Green Bay Packers, um, two of the most successful teams in the league. Their general managers came up with a plan that they're gonna draft players that fit certain thresholds in terms of measurables at the combine. Sean McDermott, I found, has done similarly. Um, If you look at the list that I've compiled, I'll have an article on Bill's Wire with this, um, his types throughout from defensive tackle to defensive end to linebacker to cornerback. Um, There's a a lot of similarities with every single player, and I kind of tried to get the averages of all their combine numbers and then put in... um, the incoming rookie class and find out which players were the best fits for what he's run in the past. Now, see, that is fantastic. See, this is the type of shit, guys. You come here to the Rock Pile Report because you get to hear this type of stuff from from Rob. He finally gets to speak it, not just put it on pen and paper. Man, I'll tell you, I'm looking at this, like this tab you just sent me here. I'm looking at Panthers defensive end. And you're right. You've got a number of guys lined up that seem to fall into line with the guys that and anyone who I mean, you saw the Super Bowl Carolina Panthers, that front seven carried that football team. They genuinely did. So to see the type of talent that he's used to dealing with and knowing that this is what he goes into it with, it kind of tells you that Rob has done his research and he knows what he's talking about when it comes to these these candidates here. So. The first guy on our list here, as far as defensive end, defensive tackle, possibility for number 10, the guy first on the board is Solomon Thomas, out of defensive end out of Stanford. Now, the pros to this guy is that he's got an arsenal of pass rush moves already as a kid. I mean, for any player coming out of college, the prospect of going up against NFL caliber tackles, I mean, that's, that seems like an impossible task. These are guys who have been doing this day in and day out for years. You know, there's very few rookie left tackles in football. And so I, I don't want to take anything away from his college production because that's not to say that he's not talented. But the hardest things is that to, you have to deal with a whole different caliber of athlete. Guys who know how to kick slide, who know how to mirror, who know how to plant and thrust and can kind of defeat whatever pass moves you, pass rush moves you have. So Solomon Thomas has a whole arsenal of them. He's got a rip move. He's got bull rushes, clubs, spin moves. He can swim. He can do all kinds of stuff. And he's got violent handwork. 
The only my two cents on this is I watched some of Stanford UNC. He ate Trubisky alive. Oh, he was in the backfield constantly. Because I was, I was just about to say that's the one game. If you want to get on board with Solomon Thomas, turn on the UNC game because he absolutely mauled that offensive line and just embarrassed them. And another thing you saw with his game is he is just relentless and plays through the whistle. Um, he's chasing down backside runs. Um, I mean, he's he's a bully, and I'm a big fan of his. I don't think he'll make it to 10. I mean, we've seen him mock as high as two to the 49ers. I don't think that'll happen after they took Arik Armstead and DeForest Buckner. But even, I think, eight to the Panthers might be his floor. Um, I mean, he's just an absolute stud. He's got heavy hands. He's a big dude. He's 275 pounds. Um, his three-cone... 6.95 seconds, just ridiculous. A 10-6 broad jump. I mean, like you said, he's a man amongst boys. And that production in college might not translate over, but I think he is one of the highest ceilings in the draft as far as pass rushers. Well, no, that those are the things that give me the most concern about him. Because when you move on to the cons section of this, I mean, we talked about what he's great at. The thing that worries me about Solomon Thomas is that he's – He's one of the top end players of the draft, but he almost fits that tweener class. He's only six mm-hmm. foot three inches. That's short for a defensive end in a four three defense, but it's big for an outside linebacker. He doesn't have the height and reach to disrupt passing lanes. That's one thing I see constantly. When, when he does get beat, it's because guys just what they'll do is they'll wait for him to sink inside, and they'll throw just a little flare pass to the running back right over his head. He can't get his hands up high enough to disrupt the pass, and it's like a lob pass, and that running back is gone. Is it because he doesn't have as long as arms as you do? Well, listen, you make fun of my gorilla arms. I'm f- <laughs> for, for those of you who haven't met me in person, I am five foot ten and a half. I claim five foot eleven on my license, and if anyone blows me in, I'll kill you. Um, I have the arms and upper torso of someone who should be six foot one. I've been told so by my doctor and everyone who fits me by a fits me for a suit. Drew and I are about the same height. Drew, you probably have a little bit on me, but when we stand next to each other and we reach our arms out, my arms go to Drew's wrists. It's not fair. I just have these gorilla arms that drag the ground, and the thing is, he has those, but he does, he's too short. Solomon Thomas can't get his hands up to block passes, and I think I think he fits more like a three four outside linebacker. Where he can come out and maybe get, you know, catch a tackle off guard, get it matched up on a tight end or a running back in space. I don't think that he, I feel like left tackles in the NFL might, one on one, he just, I don't know that he has the size to match the violence of his hands to win at the NFL level. I mean, ultimately. You know, that's a. that's a good point. And um, I mean, he really wins with those powerful hands and really getting that burst off the snap and making sure that he's able to engage an offensive lineman before they get their hands on him. Yep. him. And he's really a gap shooter. And I'd like to see more power out of a guy that size. Yep. And that, that might come with, with time, but you never know with these draft prospects. I mean, they never they might never develop that skill. So there's a risk with everybody, but I think that Solomon Thomas is a really, really good player. Oh, no, I think he's a great player, too. I I just don't think he's fit for the Bills. I don't. So next on the list of guys who could be on on the shopping list for Bills fans out there listening to this podcast, at pick number 10, 
Taco Charlton. Mighty Taco. Mighty Taco. <laughs> Rob, Rob, you're Taco Charlton's agent. You get drafted by Buffalo. Who do you sign an endorsement deal with? Lloyd's Taco Truck or Mighty Taco? Oh, man. You're going to put me in this position. I got to go with Lloyd's. I got to go with Oh! Oh! Lloyd, it Lloyd. depends what time it is. It depends what time it is. Depends where you are. Lloyd's but, is I mean, pretty good. Lloyd's is fantastic, but I'll tell you, there's no. I used to work at Mighty Taco, and I can I can tell you how many drunk people came through my drive-through at eleven o'clock, twelve o'clock at night. Late at night, Mighty Taco is going to be there to have your back. That's what yeah. I want. I want I want a defensive end who's going to have my back. Now, I mean, Taco Charlton is one of my favorite players in this draft class. Um, six six two seventy seven. I mean, he just looks the part. The guy's ridiculous. Um, he's athletic. He's long. And the thing that impresses me most about him is his ability to bend the corner at his height and his weight. Um, that's not a trait that a lot of defensive ends have um, with that hip flexibility to really get low, turn the corner, drive, and, and just sack the quarterback. And I know he'll get – a like his detractors will talk about, oh, he didn't really have a lot of production until this season. But if you watch him, uh, he, he manhandled some offensive lines. And he just he has a ridiculous burst off the snap. He's got long, long arms. I think 35-inch arms, which are three inches longer than <laughs> your boy Thomas's. And I'm a huge, huge, huge fan of his. And I would be ecstatic if the Bills were to draft him. Now, I'm, you know what? You've covered everything that I had to say that was good about him. So thanks for making me the bad guy because I'm about to step in and tell you why I do not like him as, as a prospect. You watch the flash plays that he makes. I'm not even going to knock the fact that he didn't get any serious production until this year. I'm not going to knock that. What I'm going to talk about is what I saw in his games this season. First off, pad level. This is oh, the yeah. thing oh, that yeah. this is the thing that kills guys who are this tall. When mm. you're a tall player, now I played football. I played left guard, and then until I was too short, I hit my growth spurt early as a kid. I played left guard. When that got taken away from me because I my genetic deficiencies, I got put in at fullback and occasional blocking tight end. But I'll tell you, one of the things that you realize about blocking is that the taller guys are actually easier to block because their center of gravity, they have to work so much harder to get lower than you, which eventually is what wins the leverage battle. So and when I watch Taco Charlton play, yeah, he makes a lot of flash plays, but I also watch... I almost want to say an equal number of times when he gets dug out of a hole or when someone bodies him up low and just carries him out to create a hole on the edge for a running back to flow through. That's concerning to me because that's at the, that is at the collegiate level. At the NFL level, these guys, will, these guys are professionals. These tackles are technicians. They will manhandle you. And I don't know that he can fight through that. Yeah, I had that written down in my in my cons on, on him as well. Um, you see him in his uh, getting out of his stance a lot, being so tall. He kind of leans forwards, if you notice that, and puts his head down yep. and almost kind of falls forwards when he's when he's uh, starting his pass rush. Now, one of the so, filthiest like said, things I ever really got. Really need to be co- coached up on how to uh, stay square 
and get after these guys. And he reminds <clears throat> me a lot of Michael Johnson um, from the Bengals, like that type of body type. Yep. But at the same time, I think that he has enough skills where he could develop. And he has the talent and the athletic ability where he can play and really anywhere in a 4-3. And at 10, I'd be fine with him, even though a lot of Bills fans would be pretty angry with a defensive lineman again. Oh, absolutely. And then the other thing that I don't like about him is his, he doesn't have ideal speed. I mean, you look at him and his, rea- his reaction speed is what I'm looking at. Not just his 40 time. His 40 mm-hmm. time was low for a defensive end. He did not run well at the combine. But the thing I think is more terrifying when you look at the tape, you watch him give up big plays where he bites inside too hard. And then when he realizes he's beat to the edge, he can't recover. It's just yeah, gone. If, like if you the, run option on him, it's over with. And he that's something that, like, like I said about Thomas, that you never know until you're actually in that position as an NFL player, if you can ever overcome that deficiency. So his awareness is a big issue, but at the same time, you have to decide whether those risks outweigh the reward. And I think that they really do with a guy like Taco. All right. I mean, I look at him like a guy who's built like Justin Tuck, who maybe gambles a little bit more than he should and doesn't have proper peg control. Mm-hmm. I think you can maybe coach those things if you have the right defensive line coach, which I think we do. I mean, Mike Waffle, if anyone out there is seen. <laughs> Rob, just, please tell me you've wa- you watched. Oh, of course. Just go Multiple to YouTube. Times. Anyone out there who's listening to this podcast right now who doesn't know who Mike Waffle is, go to YouTube and look. He is our new D-line coach. Just just YouTube his name and look at his hard knocks highlights. This is who we have coaching these guys. I have no doubt in my mind that they're going to be a highly motivated group. And so if that's the way that they wanted to go was defensive end, I couldn't, I wouldn't doubt it because, you know, because whoever they're going to put into the system is going to be a motivated individual. I know when we go to training camp, that's when I, as, as someone who doesn't know X's and O's, I'm going to want to watch what Waffle's doing with the D-line. <laughs> well, and that brings me to the last prospect I think could be in top 10 consideration. And that's Derek Barnett. Now, the thing, he's a defensive end out of Tennessee. The thing I like about Derek Barnett, now again, I, I'm an SEC guy, so I watch all of these games. I've seen him probably four, five, six games just actually sitting in my basement drinking beer watching the games. He's the guy that I noticed most out of the entire defense off Tennessee. And then when you go back and watch the tape of him having, I don't know. The thing that stands out to me is he's just a violent individual. He hand fights, he shoves, he headbutts, he's, he's filthy. He's a throwback player. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, you watch him and he'll out-muscle you. If you're a guard and you're trying to square up with him in space, he's going to slap you to the side and try to bite inside to disrupt a running play. That's the type of defense. He's a, he's a throwback player. He's not fast. I will say that. He's not the quickest guy. But once he beats his blocks, he isn't happy with just making the tackle. He's he's going to punish you when he touches you. Barnett's a guy who you, he plays with a mean streak, and it's it's evident by what goes on in the field. Definitely, and and like you, and another thing that I really like about his game is just how he sets up games with tackles. Um, you'll see him go outside rush, outside rush, outside rush, and then next thing you know, he's doing an inside move and just ma- making the left tackle look silly. And he's just a violent player, strong hands, just beats him up. 
uh, looking at pro football focus, he has 78 pressures this, this season. And he's just been pr- productive in every year that he's been with the Volunteers. And like you said, um, a lot of people might not know about him. He's not the most flashy, athletic guy, but he gets it done. Well, I think the thing is he wins with willpower more mm-hmm. so than technique. He's not the most technical guy, and that's one of the knocks against him. I mean, it really is. So then you, the other thing I like about him, though, is his field awareness. He reads plays and reacts to them extremely well. I mean, you look at the numbers he put up. 33 sacks. He broke Reggie White's record at Tennessee for sacks. And he had 52 tackles for a loss in 32 NCAA starts. I mean, he's every play he's at the line looking to jump the snack, try, snap, trying to just muscle the offensive lineman into the backfield. That type of you know that type of mentality you can't teach that. Yeah, I know you saw that Alabama game when when they had to they had to double him with Howard and Cam, and he was still he was still making plays. And I mean, he, he's a fun player to watch. I mean, like I said, he's not the most explosive or anything, but he's some he's a finisher. No, it's funny that you bring that up because that actually makes my cons list, and this is the reason why. So that Alabama game, okay. Taught me something about Derek Barnett. What I learned is that for as aggressive as he is, his motor has a limit. Mm-hmm. In that game, he was, I mean, Tennessee wasn't a good football team in that, in that game. No, did you see their coach's haircut? <laughs> <laughs> but what I will say is that he was, for the first half of that Alabama versus Tennessee game, Derek Barnett was a wrecking ball. He was behind the line of scrimmage in almost every play, blowing up our plays. We had to run away from him. They had to call design bootlegs away from his side of the line. And you're asking a freshman college quarterback to call audibles to recognize that? It just created chaos for our offense. But we still went into halftime up 21-7. So we scored. And then he was just loafing on those backside he, runs he in was, the second half. He was gassed. He had been uh-huh. on the field for most of the first half. And so then they came into that second half. They got the first touchdown. It was 14-21. I was sweating bullets. And then we went on to, or, or no, not, uh, excuse me. They kicked a field goal, and it was 10. So now it's 21-10, and I'm like, oh, shit. They're a couple big plays away, much like Texas A&M did to us. They could come back and win this game. And instead, we buried them to the tune of 20, uh, 28 more points. But that's because their defense was on the field for the entire second half and most of the first half. And the thing that scares me, though, about Derek Barnett when I watched that game is that he was the wrecking ball in the first half. But then as his motor got worn down, he just kind of like leaned on tackles. It wasn't even like he was fighting anymore. Is that even a, is that a product of... Alabama's Alabama's run, run game? No, I think it's a product of Derek Barnett just wearing down. Because I, I know with as much SEC ball as we watched, you kept talking up Alabama as having their closer, Bo Scarborough. Oh, yeah, he's our closer. He was our Mariano Rivera. He would run the ball down teams' throats, and I think when you get into that mode, you can grind a defensive line down. And I think that's what happened to Barnett, but that's that would worry me as a defensive coordinator who's drafting this guy that I have to worry about what his pitch count is. How long is he going to be useful? Can he go four quarters with high motor? Because if he can't, then I can't take him at number 10. At the end of the day, here's the question I want to pose to you, Rob. Out of all three of these guys that we've talked about, 
Now, you've said that you think that the floor for Solomon Thomas is pick 10. You don't think he'll go any lower than that. I have to ask you, between Taco Charlton and Derek Barnett, if the Bills, I know, I know I've been saying, you know, hey, the Bills need to trade back to 15 to 25. What if, because I'm looking for that extra second round pick, because this is such a deep draft. If the Bills were to trade back to, say, 13, and both Taco Charlton and Derek Barnett, Derek Barnett are still on the board, who would you take before, who would you pick out of the two if DN had to be the choice? Um, I'd have to go with Taco, but I would change that pick to Malik McDowell from Michigan State. Oh, <laughs> snap. You think Malik McDowell's worth that pick? Yep. Oh, I got to hear why. You can't just throw that out there and leave me hanging. Come on now. Um, I know everyone's talking about him taking off plays and giving up. I mean, you, he was on a terrible team. If you watch him, the guy is a freak of nature. Um, I think he is a game changer. You play him anywhere on the defensive line. Uh, Barnett, like you said, he might be a little limited to either outside linebacker or defensive end. McDowell, you could play him as a base end. Um, in sub packages, you put him at three technique, and he just dominates anyone that's in front of him. Um, he's a freak athlete, 6'6", 295. I mean, the guy is ridiculous, and I would be willing to take a chance on him over a questionable – if you're going to have questions about Derek Barnett's motor – then why not have and still be willing to take him? I would take Malik McDowell with those same concerns. Fantastic. Woo! True. I mean, I don't dissension in the ranks. I don't even know X's and O's like the two of you, but you don't even have Malik McDowell in this rundown. No, because I don't, I didn't view him as a good fit for the defense we'd be running, but apparently Rob sees something. I don't guys. Another reason to pay attention to the stuff that Rob's putting out there on the bills wire. You know, clearly the guy sees something I don't. I'm telling you, watch some of the games from early from early in the season compared to the as the season drew on when they were started to lose. And you will be impressed. Mm. So if I'm looking at other guys, you know, first, second, third round defensive end prospects who might fit what what uh, we're trying to do here on defense. I ultimately believe that there's really only two other guys. Now, maybe you have some other names that I haven't heard of, but here are two guys that I think fit what we're trying to do, but I feel like both of them are gambles. First guy is that uh, Tano Kapasong. I don't know how the hell to pronounce it. The, the defensive yeah. end out of Villanova. Yeah, he's, a, he's an interesting one to me, too. Um, I mean, 6'7", 295. He kind of reminds me of Marcus Hunt. Um, remember him with the Bengals? Um, I don't really know. He's still coming into his own as a defensive end, but like you said, with that that playing so high, um, I just don't know if like how much you could really do with him and how much he can grow. Um, I do like Derek Rivers a lot from Youngstown State. That guy I think is going to be the sleeper of the draft and probably be a first round draft pick. Um, and who else would I say as a defensive end? Um, hmm. 
Well, I mean, maybe a guy like Tack McKinley from UCLA. Uh, see, I don't like McKinley. Not for our defense. Huh? I mean, I'm talking about guys. He might go in the first round. I just don't see him as being viable for us as the Buffalo Bills. I mean, I look at that, that. That's that's what I keep in the back of my head when I'm scouting all these players because there's way too many for me to ever try to scout them all. So what I try to narrow it down to is who fits my defense. And what I come back with is this Capasong, maybe. Maybe he could be a poor man's uh, Ezekiel Anza. You know, a guy who hasn't had a lot of time to acclimate to the football, the game of uh, pro football. I mean, he's got his I mean, pros. I know we saw his combine numbers, but at the same time, I, I, I don't know. He's got his pros and cons. I mean, he's got prototype yeah. size, and he's got a lot of upper body strength. But the thing I don't like about him is that he is a he's a he's a project. He's a mm-hmm. he's a mid second round prospect to me. I've because never, his technique is spotty. I've never heard of the guy, and it, you have here he went to Villanova. My question is just somebody who does not know X's and O's. Villanova, who are you playing against? <laughs> well, and that's that's part of the comp- that's part of the conversation here is you're not playing top flight offensive line talent. You're not not in the FCS, so. It's hard to determine what he could be at the NFL level. I mean, you look at a guy, and I don't begrudge him at all. Arthur Motes is one of my favorite. He's one of my favorite NFL players. I got a chance to meet the guy. I met his kids. Like, they're just, he's a great dude. But he wasn't a great linebacker. (laughs) We drafted him in the sixth (laughs) round, and he was leading the FCS in most statistics, right? But... He came to the NFL and was a mediocre player. He's still a special, a core special teamer, and he's a decent backup, but he's never going to be a starter. I mean, that's that, that's my fear with Capasong is that you could draft this guy and end up with a guy who's just a rotational player, in which case you better not take him above the third round in this draft. But someone will, I think. You know what I mean? Just yeah, based I, on I agree his, just on the upside there. And then the other guy here is Chris I'll, I'll leave off with one from Ooh. that you'll like. Um, not a defensive end, a defensive tackle. I think Dalvin Tomlinson is probably one of the most underrated Woo! defensive tackles in the draft. Um, at Alabama, he used two-gapping basically the whole time as a nose tackle. But I think that he could play both one and three technique. Um Maybe you kind of spell Kyle Williams as he rides out into the sunset. Uh, he plays nose tackle. He had fo- he had 40 pressures this year as a pass rusher, in addition to being a run-stopping nose tackle, too. So he's got some versatility there as well. And if you look at that chart, oh, he's I'm an exact fit for McDermott. <clears throat> mm. Man, I'm telling you, this project you're working on is going to be fantastic. And now here's what I want to say. You just touched on Delvin Tomlinson. Delvin Tomlinson is one of my sleepers in this draft simply because no one knows who the hell he is. He's yeah. not an explosive pass rusher, but I'll tell you, that guy, he has experience in taking on and defeating double teams, and he stacks and shed blocks. I mean, he's your, he is a run-stuffing nose tackle who also has a little bit of pass rush ability, and that's coming out of college. Maybe you with his size and his ability, you can teach him to be something bigger than that. Is he good for our, our third round selection? Oh, if he was there in the third round and we snatched him up, Chris, it'll be like what happened last year when we drafted Reggie Raglan. Oh God! I, oh, I will. I my will. My boy too. Oh, I dude. just think it's absurd that that Tomlinson isn't getting the hype that a, 
a guy like Ashawn Robinson, who was, in my mind, terrible, got last season. Oh, no, I agree. Ashawn Robinson was one of those guys who, I again, another Bama player. Ashawn yeah. Robinson was, he would make some flash plays here and there, but he wasn't consistent. And yeah. he, I mean, what has he done at the NFL level? Jaron Reed has more NFL production than Ashawn Robinson does. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's that's what you're talking about with a player like that. You've got a guy who he's a D lineman. He's tall. He's long. He makes some flash plays, but he doesn't have a consistent motor, and that's what kills him. Guys like Tomlinson, guys like Jer- uh, Jared Allen. You know, he, there's no way he makes it out of the top five picks. Correct. You mean Jonathan Allen? Jonathan Allen. Jonathan Allen does not make it out of the top five picks. Not that white guy with the mullet. <laughs> not the right guy with the white guy with the mullet. Jonathan Allen from Alabama, the defensive tackle, does not make it out of the top five picks. I think. Yeah, I mean, have- I know there's the the concerns about the arthritis or whatever in his shoulders, <laughs> but I mean, if you're drafting a guy and you're and you're an owner, are you going to say, okay, I can have this guy for four years and then throw him to the street? As bad as that sounds, um, and get as much production as I can out of him, I'm, I'm taking him. So I don't think he's, he's falling at all. And then one of one more of the guys who shows up on my, you know, list and he shows up on your list for defensive tackles. So let's talk about him for a hot minute. Montravius Adams. I take a look at War Eagle. <laughs> I take a look at, he played for Auburn. I take a look at your list that you've been compiling here of players who fit the draft scheme of, you know, what, the what the Panthers tried to do. Montrevious Adams is the top-rated guy. You know, I see him with a well, actually, no, I see him here with a 75, but he's one of the higher-rated guys in your list. What is oh, it that you like that, about That's just alphabetical, I think. Okay. I do like him. <laughs> you do like him? Here's what yeah. I like about him. He's an, a fantastic interior pass rusher, which reminds me a lot of Kyle Williams. He's a guy who is just violent at the point of attack. He's unblockable one-on-one. He was double-teamed the majority of his career. and his- He had a lot of responsibility in that defense, too. Um, he was really the only guy on that defensive line. And he was playing nose tackle. He was playing three technique. He was playing five technique. He was all over the place, and he was still dominating. And I think that his combine kind of solidified that he might not be the most athletic, but like you said, he could be a Kyle Williams type of guy as maybe a second or third round draft pick that could come in, maybe develop for a year and then take over as a starter. Oh, absolutely. I think the thing that said, I mean, I've got my concerns about him. I mean, he needs a gap attacking defense to succeed. So he, for him, it's all about scheme fit. If the team that drafts him has the right scheme, he could be monstrously productive. If not, he could struggle a little bit. But I think that what he has on his side, Montrevious Adams, is that his production came in, I will say it, the most difficult division of college football, the SEC. Yeah, he shined in the in the brightest lights, and that was what was what I like to see the most of. Like when I go on draft breakdown to watch to watch the games, I like to turn on their best opponent first and see what kind of player they are Absolutely. and how they play against the top competition. See, the and way I Adams scout was all over the place. The way I do my scouting is I look at, okay, I take a look, and it's harder for linemen. It really is. Yeah. For skill position players who have quantitative stats, whether you're defensive players, whether you're offensive players, 
For those, I like to look at your two best games and your two worst games every season and see what happened in this game that caused you to fall here. What did you do well in this game by comparison to that game? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And so what I saw from Montrevious Adams is that that dude just balls, though. He doesn't stop. He's got a nonstop motor. I think he could be. I think he could be. I'm telling you, I think he could be the heir to Kyle Williams if the Bills were to look at him in the second or third round. I would not balk at the pick, even though most fans would hate another defensive line pick. Yeah, any defensive lineman that gets drafted, just I'm turning off my phone. (laughs) Oh, yeah, because you don't want the hate. You don't want the hate. Yeah, I don't know if you guys were around for the Adolphus Washington fiasco last year. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, I'm turning it off this year. <laughs> I was going to ask you, Rob, and Drew to jump in on this with a coaching change. And last year we took Adolphus Washington kind of assuming, okay, this guy's going to be groomed to take over what Kyle Williams is doing. Do you, do you see Adolphus fitting into McDermott's system or could you see us taking somebody in the third or fifth round because we don't have a fourth? to, I guess, be Kyle's replacement? I mean, I'm, I was not a fan of him coming out of Ohio State at all. Um, I don't know what position he is, really. Are, is he a three-technique one-gapper? Is he a two-gapper? Is he a five-technique? Like, what is he exactly? At Ohio State, he played D-end and D-tackle, and he made his living as a uh, gap shooter and with the bills last year he was in a three four and he did some things that were that were all right but i mean the guy looks like johnny bravo i mean he's got chicken legs and he's built up top and he gets blown off the ball really easily and i don't think that you could play hat 40 50 snaps a game with that body type Dude, I'm, I'm not gonna lie I, you said johnny bravo and i immediately started laughing i started flexing i was like hey hey Seriously, look hey, take a pi- look at a picture of this guy. <laughs> I was just gonna say he's got great hair. No, what I was gonna say is this: Johnny Bravo, the, the, you're not wrong. He he's a guy who at the beginning it's of the, the season, though, but at the be- guy I've ever seen. But what I will say is that at the beginning of last season, he was he was the top. He wasn't he was picked in the third round, but he was the top rated rookie against the run. Okay, so for run defense. Adolphus Washington for the first eight weeks of the season was the top-rated rookie. And then somewhere along the line, he got lazy. And apparently they started they started benching him because he was lazy in practice during the week. That right there is a red flag to me. I don't that was an issue going back to Ohio State as well. And maybe I'm just bitter about him not getting me my chicken wings that he that he still owes me. But, uh, oh. I mean, I don't think Can that he's... Hey, whoa, whoa, whoa. whoa, whoa, whoa you you whoa, can't whoa, just whoa. say that and not elaborate yeah. on it. How does Adolphus Washington owe you chicken wings? Oh, he owes me tickets to a game, chicken wings, and a signed jersey. Oh. You Let's oh, hear it. Man. Oh. oh, man. Okay, so... so you know, I do my scouting and everything before the draft, and yeah. I j- just tweeted, man, Adolphus Washington is terrible. And I didn't add him or anything. He he searched his name and said, not what your mom thinks. <laughs> this was right after he was arrested for soliciting a prostitute and getting suspended <laughs> for the bowl game. So so I, I just said, um, maybe you'd like to... You know, 
work on some uh, personal things before coming after my mother. And then we got into joking and said he, he said, oh, yeah, if I get drafted by Buffalo, I'll, we'll go out to wings. I'll get you a jersey, blah, blah, blah. So I'm in the, in the third round um, out with my friends, and all of a sudden, I guess they drafted Washington. And my phone just is just shaking on the table going nuts because every apparently everyone had seen it and was jumping in on it and everything and he he just backed out oh of course he did and well, skipped leg day well you know no well, chicken wings no leg day no chicken wings and no leg day <laughs> rob i'll when reed gets here on sunday i don't know how well he knows adolphus but i'll 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 ask him to hey Go when you go in this week. If you talk, oh, to he, us, he knows. Uh, oh, he knows. Oh, he's aware. Well, guess what, guys? Let's let's yeah. make Adolphus Washington. Let's see. Yeah. Okay, guys. Yeah. Add so Washington. on our way out, let's. Can we all do Rob a favor? Can we all at Adolphus Washington tonight and just ask him where Rob's chicken wings are? Yeah. Now, Rob, where can people tag you in that post on social media? At Rob Quinn six one nine, and also make sure to follow at the Bills Wire. If you want to have about eight to ten articles, <laughs> best articles you will ever read on your timelines. Um, we've got about 50 scouting reports. We're trying to get to around 75 before the draft. Um, yeah, that's, that's about it. So, All right, so, guys, A, A Washington underscore 92. That's Adolphus Washington's Twitter handle. Help Rob out. He's owed chicken wings. And from a, a jersey. And a jersey. But signed I, jersey. Even then, I think he settled for this chicken wings and the just photo the, just op. Just the wings. Just, just the, the wings, wings and the photo op. How about this, Rob? Okay, because Adolphus got selected by Buffalo, so and you made the bet of chicken I've, wings. I've got, the, I've got the screenshots to prove it, too, so okay. get back out now. <laughs> so Adolphus is taking you to get chicken wings where you want to get chicken wings. Where do you get your chicken wings? Oh. Oh, oh, oh. Uh, I'm living. I live down Tyler. I do like Gabriel's Gate. I do like Duff's. Mm. I'm not a fan of Anchor Bar. So yes, good man, good man. Rob, you, do we just become best friends? I think so. <laughs> I think we did. Rob, you know what, guys? Like I said, tweet at Rob. Follow him at the Bills Wire. I mean, his work is phenomenal. He's. I'll tell you. I don't know when this guy sleeps. I don't know. He's working around the clock to try to pump out content about the Buffalo Bills. And I'll tell you, I've started reading him. I I don't touch the Buffalo News stuff anymore. But I follow him, and I'm just as informed as anybody else. So do yourselves. I have to read it and and recap it for you guys. But you know what? I do it because I love you all. (laughs) So do yourselves a favor. Follow Rob over at the Bills Wire. Guys, you can. (laughs) Guys, get after this whole social media thing. Let, let, let. You know, let Adolphus Washington know that he owes our boy Rob some chicken wings. A Washington underscore 92 on Twitter. We're on Twitter at Rockpile Report. If you get our podcast on iTunes, I've been meaning to say this for weeks. If you get it on iTunes, give us a five star and review it. If you subscribe and you think the host is drunk, go ahead and give us three stars and tell us why you don't like it. Guys, we got to get out of here. I'm your host, Drew Gear. That's Chris Kruger. That's Rob Quinn. And this has been the Rock Bow Report.
Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.